1: And welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kaveh Hoda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Thank you for joining us on uh, this little podcast that we're going to do today. Um, I'm really excited about this podcast. It is a topic that I have wanted to discuss for a long time. And then uh, somebody wrote a book that seemed to nail exactly what I wanted to read about. That somebody is Mike Cole. Before I introduce him though, I'm gonna introduce a a frequent House of Pod contributor and Bud. We have Mr. Will Poole, otherwise known as Christy Yamaguchi main on the internet. Will, thank you for joining me again, buddy.
3: You're welcome. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. And calling me a contributor is uh is very gracious. Um I don't know that I contribute much other than uh dipshittery, but I'm glad to do it when I can. So thank it's you.
1: World class dipshittery, my friend. <laughs> um I am so happy you're back. I really enjoy uh, uh not too- only hearing you, but seeing your majestic and beautiful flowing beard. It yeah. is and is I sight. I like
3: I, I feel like I I I like put some work into this appearance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I made like you I work for it. You can read a book. Yeah, exactly. You read, read a book. book. <laughs> I, I enjoy reading, but God damn, I am a slow reader. Holy cow. <laughs> I am uh, but, but I put it's, it's about the effort. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like uh, I, I absorbed a lot. So I mean, I'm stoked.
1: And it is an amazing book. It is not, I, I wouldn't say it's a light read. It is a, I know, the author himself in the book says it isn't doing an exhaustive uh coverage of the topic but it feels like he covered a lot in it oh, it yeah, is yeah it is the bronze lie shattering the myth of spartan warrior supremacy by mike cole mike mike i'm going to give you a little uh let me little give you, a little, uh, give you a little introduction here you tell me if this is incorrect mike has worked for the cia he's worked for the defense intelligence agency the office of naval intelligence the New York Coast Guard, or Coast Guard, at least. I'm not sure exactly where he's located there. And his writing has been in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, and this book is epic. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Um, Mike, we're going to get into this book. We have a (laughs) lot to talk about with this book. But before (laughs) we do that, there's been something that's been weighing on my mind for a while. Now, um, Will... You probably don't even remember this. You probably just posted this and didn't even think twice about it, but you posted something.
3: I am legitimately terrified (laughs) as to what the hell you're about to bring up. I think
1: you just retweeted this. It was, it was, it was someone had posed this real. And difficult Uh sort of mind bending question, which was say you had a girlfriend Uh and you had a mom and they switched bodies their oh, minds man. went to the oh, other bodies, oh, no. uh-huh. and there was only one way—one way—to switch them back, and that was you had to have sex with one of them. <laughs> Which one would you pick? And oh, I know you didn't God. think twice about this, man, but it oh. haunted me. It's <laughs> it yeah, ob- I I have an answer though.
3: Okay. All right, but go on. Oh. So,
1: do you remember this at all? Let me ask you. If I, yeah, I do
3: this. now. I, I, absolutely remember it, and I think I did just retweet this. This was not a. This was not an original on not my will. part. I okay. probably just saw it, read it, was horrified, and then hit immediately smashed the retweet button because <laughs> other people had to suffer along with me. Uh, sounds like you did as well.
1: You really. Um, <laughs> Fuck me up with this one. Mike, I'm not gonna put you on the spot, Mike. You're a real like author, you're a real historian, you're a man <laughs> of letters. I do not want to make you go through this. <clears throat> what would the
3: Spartans choose in this situation? What would Maybe. they what would the, <laughs> they I just were, tried it. And, Maybe, pro- maybe you could replace it with their dad and like their uh like I was about to say, whoever whoever should. they're mentoring
2: i was about to say they probably should very good excellent yeah, yeah they <laughs> probably should depending on their age they'd probably choose a young boy or, yes. or uh, an older man who could who could teach them
1: right. but, but but like the oracle is like but that's not going to solve the problem they're like, but yeah. we want to do it anyways <laughs> what we're
3: doing. yeah, yeah we, don't, we don't really give a shit about the problem that's, that's besides <laughs> the point totally <laughs> okay all right so, what's your answer then cody
1: so I thought about this. There's only one way to do it. And it requires the <laughs> consent. You have to uh-huh. get the consent of both parties in this. Excellent. Excellent. But what you do is you, you say, OK, you get the girlfriend with your mom's brain in there uh-huh. and you say, we are going to deeply sedate you, put you under propofol. We're going to have an anesthesiologist there to shut them down completely. So right. they are completely right. asleep. For just this, a, in a safe manner, right. in a medical way, they are not there. They are not in there at that point. It's just the body. Now, Ken, sure. that's really creepy. But I'm assuming your girlfriend wants this because she wants her body back. Yeah, absolutely. So, this
3: is like a body horror situation. Yeah, like you exactly. were you were trying to remedy this thing, right? So,
1: with their consent to do that, uh-huh. that is the only way to get them back. In that, that I yeah. can think of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did I solve it?
3: I I would say yeah. that's about. I, I'm uncomfortable positing any other solutions besides well, wait, that. To wait, be wait, honest wait. with
2: you, Will, you just mashed the retweet button. The only way to know if we solve this accurately is to track down the original poster That's and true. get their take true. on this answer. God damn it! Okay, <laughs> I got to figure out. <laughs> do that I will the do show.
3: the. Uh, I'll do the research on this and okay. uh, and figure out who posited the question okay. originally.
1: <laughs> All right, now on to the real topic. I mean, we could talk about that for a lot longer, but it's probably a good idea to move on to the real topic of the episode, which is this book that I am super excited to talk about. So it's this book, The Bronze Lie. The point of it is to sort of look at this, uh, what I would say is a myth, but maybe not. We'll talk about it, of Spartan warrior supremacy and what's called the Spartan mirage. So um, let me first start by asking you, this is a term I think that I don't know if you came up with this term. It sounds like it was in use before you. What is the Spartan Mirage? Yeah,
2: the Spartan Mirage is, is not my term. It is a, it's a French historian's term that dates way back. The bronze lie is my term, and they both refer to the same thing. And it's this sort of popular myth that the Spartans, I mean, this myth is so well taken in in modern culture that the word Spartan in English means, you know, a room that isn't well decorated, you know, the person that doesn't own very much. You know, um, but the word Spartan has become a watchword. You look at sports teams, you look at military units. You know, I was eating dinner (laughs) tonight and the and the refrigerator behind the bar had a big label Spartan, which shows a muscular, you know, guy in a helmet. So this idea of that you're you're a great warrior, you don't like money, you don't drink alcohol, you don't need comforts, you prize the community over yourself, you're a man of few words. All say, of
3: those. It, it sounded like originally you were uh, just describing like a college bachelor, like a not well decorated <laughs> apartment, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't really value money because they don't have much of it. There's not right. a lot in the fridge. Right. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, that that is what the Spartan Mirage is. Um, and of course, it's a mirage because it prevents you from seeing the truth. Um, and I went. I took it a step further, and I'm saying it, it's not a mirage, man. It's a straight up lie. And this idea, and the perfect example of this, look, look. This idea really went into overdrive when Frank Miller put out his comic, I think in '98, 300. Um, and then Zack Snyder in 2006 made it into the movie 300, which was a smash hit. And those two pop culture events took this myth and threw it into overdrive to the point where it's insane. It's insane. And so this is was really my motivator to write the book, because, you know, the, the, one of the core tenets of the bronze lies, this idea that the Spartans never lost, never surrendered, never ran from a fight. And the only way you could believe that is if you don't read any of the contemporary sources, if you ignore Herodotus, if you ignore Thucydides, if you ignore Xenophon, like the people actually writing about this. It's the only way you could believe that. So calling it a mirage is not going far enough. It's a lie. It's just not true. It's not who they were.
1: You know, it, we're going to talk about three hundred because that, to me, is like—I mean—I have a lot of thoughts about three hundred and, and <laughs> tied in with a lot of emotions about the yeah, three hundred movie. So it's probably good that you guys are both here to like actually be the sensible ones. We'll about help that you. Sort we'll of, help yeah, you. It. To help you unfold <laughs> and un, as as podcasters like to say, unpack. We have a lot to unpack in that. We're, we're going to hold space for you. Kaveh got uh, <laughs>
3: self-conscious when he he realized he wasn't as like hairless and sexy as Xerxes in that movie. Yeah, <laughs> <it's> bullshit, <laughs> man.
1: Do that, Bullshit. Movie,
2: it, it's like, and Xerxes is a great example. Like, back in the days when I still use Twitter, which I highly recommend people don't do because it's yeah. successful. But back in the day, I refuse to call it X, but back in the yeah. day when I used to use Good Twitter, man. I tweeted a picture because there are engravings and inscriptions that I think Persepolis and Susan would show Xerxes what he looked like, right. what he really looked like, yeah. yeah. And I put this up next to the picture of like the actor and the the way he was presented the film 300. And I'm like, they're not even trying. Like this guy looks like he's from Mars. Like there's nothing to do with it.
1: Uh, Well, this, we might as well just get into the movie because that that is a big part of this. Yeah. So 300 for the people who haven't seen it, it's basically just like you said, Zack Snyder did uh, a movie based pretty closely, I think on the comic written by Frank Miller Frank Miller wrote some good stuff. He did some daredevil runs for the comics. He wrote Sin City, a lot of weird misogynistic stuff in a lot of his his things. But this this one kind of was like a different take. He like tried to. I think maybe the movie um, you mentioned this in your book actually there was a movie in the '60s or something about the Spartans mm-hmm. who inspired, him, Spart- and he really kind of wanted to to build up that mythos a little bit. In it, the basic premise is there is these three hundred brave very white men, masters of <laughs> sword fighting and clearly electrolysis because they have like women <laughs> hair on their bodies. They fight off this scary brown, uh, you know, effeminate uh, invaders. In- invading hordes. In- invading yeah. hordes. Yeah, yeah. And what, what really, bo- okay, so a lot of things bothered me, but the thing that bothered me the most was I was, I, I remember being young and seeing the poster for it. And I remember the, the line, the tagline was, I'm not lying, a, a line in the sand for democracy, which is exactly the same line that George Bush used during the Iraq invasion. And yeah, then what they, the were, hell? they were Oh, that's amazing. They were grilling Zack Snyder about this, and they were like, um, don't you think this is kind of a weird time to be doing this, given kind of the situation we're in? And he was like, uh no this is a hundred percent historical fact that's what he said I'm not making (laughs) that up this is historical oh my god and so so the first thing I want to bring up is this concept of democracy Sparta as a democracy your book goes into a lot of detail about the actual system of it can you answer what do you know this is a complicated answer that you took a long time to write in this book I won't do that
2: to your listeners don't worry I'm going
1: to ask you the to to yeah. if you can't drill it down, was Sparta a democracy? No, 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 not even a little bit.
2: Done. <laughs> There's your answer. <laughs> no. Okay, next uh, it question. Was, no. it was it was, but but also in, in. So look, all right. So here here's the thing. Just a little background of the book. When I wrote the Bronze Lie, I was definitely in the grip, the frenetic grip of of, of the rise of progressivism as a as a horrific response to Trump's election. Right. I view Trump as an existential threat. I was just horrified and i was really caught up in that um and so i wrote this book because look the far right not just in the united states but around the world uses the ancient spartans as symbols and i wrote this book to take that away from them and to be like no you know that's bullshit and in fact you know 300 i think it was the national review that called it which is a big right wing it's one of the better right wing magazines but it's still right wing said it was one of the best 25 films of all time you know it really got a lot of um, right-wing, right-wing right wing praise. Guy
3: who's only seen 300. Uh, this is really giving me 300 <laughs> vibes. Like, God, yeah. what a short, like, list of, uh, to put, I don't know, that that's boggles my mind. 25 yeah. movies of all time is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, so,
2: so and, and and there's, like, you know, videos, I think you've probably seen it, There was a really famous video, or the scene where Leonidas in the movie kicks the Persian messenger down the well. They put Trump's head on him, and he was kicking George Soros down the well that video was viewed five million times. Like it was just insane. So I, I really wrote it for that end, but then a really terrible thing happened, which was that a lot of people in my own tribe, because look, this existential horror of Trump really in, in the American left and in the global left created this like reaction, that's almost just as bad. And like people were taking this book and using it to like, spin other bullshit about Sparta. So one of the things I've been trying really hard to do since the book came out is get back to center and kind of be like, Mm -hmm. look, I want to expose the bronze lie, but I don't want to cover it up with another lie. Sure. Right. So so the answer is no, Sparta was not a democracy. But the democracy that's held up, which is Athens, was also not really a democracy, Mm -hmm. not by the standards that we consider, which is a real representative government where all of the citizens... Of the polis, which is the city-state, would have had the the political franchise, but no. Sparta was an oligarchy; it was ruled by a tiny elite that that had a slave caste called the helots that did um, almost all of the agricultural and house labor. It was an apartheid uh, sort of state. It w- it looked a lot more like um, I don't know medieval uh, Europe with a with a uh, ruled by barons. I think is probably the best way to say it.
1: Yeah, the the breakdown of the helots was a very interesting thing to me, because you know slaves were clearly not unique to Sparta, but there was this interesting concept of of the the helots versus the the peers, as they're called, the the population you describe in your book that that is the sort of the aristocratic population that that is has the ability to learn how to fight, and it sounds like there was really a very tiny minority that had the power, um, just. I mean, I don't know what that's like. That's weird. I can't even imagine <laughs> what, that, what that would be like. But um, I do think it's really interesting. And you, you mentioned it already. You, you mentioned that the word Spartan now, for us, it means someone who has like an indifference to comfort or luxury and spurns wealth. Was that part of it true? The the wealth aspect of it, the, the Spartan quote unquote lifestyle? was that, that an accurate depiction?
2: So I would say no. But look, again, this is really important. So and this is the thing about history. So uh, both uh, so there's a a very important historian in my life, Dr. Michael Livingston. He's a medievalist. We started together on a TV show called Contact and we've co-authored a book called The Killing Ground, which is a book about the Thermopylae, which is where 300 was fought, but there's there's something we're tracking something like 18 battles that were fought there from Uh, 480 BC or before 480 BC all the way to World War II. No one's written a book about all of them. And that's coming out in February. But Mike, look, I'm an autodidact, right? I'm a self-taught historian. My background's in, in the military. I taught myself Latin and Greek. I've done the work to do this scholarship. Mike's a 30 year professional scholar, right? And a a professor. So we work really uh, closely together. And one of the things he has always said to me, which I take to heart, is that if you're really going to be an historian, the important thing is it has to be getting it right, not being right. So one thing historians hate to say is, I don't know. We hate it. Because if if we don't know, what the hell do you need us for, right? But the truth is, when you talk about ancient Sparta, where most of the sources are lost, and we have—they have this in common with the ancient Celts—is that they don't write about themselves. We have no writing from Spartans. We have some epigraphy, which is to say inscriptions, but very, very few. So when we talk about who we thought the Spartans were, we're getting it from fanboys. We're getting it from Athenians. We're getting it from Corinthians. We're getting it from Romans. We're getting—and oftentimes we're getting it from people who are two hundred to five hundred years after the thing they're writing about, which of course means that they could have messed something up. So as we talk about these things, I want to be clear. We're guessing, right? We're making educated guesses, but we're guessing. And a lot of historians don't like to say that, and you'll get a lot of people coming out and speaking with a lot of certainty that they cannot possibly have. And that's one thing I really want to avoid. So, to your back to your question, luxury. No. For example, uh they didn't use money. They absolutely did use money. And I prove that in a couple of spots in the book. And in fact, I sh- uh, that all of their wealth was distributed equally. Well, I show that that wealth inequality, uh, wealth accruing through inheritance and through purchasing, created uh, a situation where they couldn't pay their mess dues. You had to pay a fee to be part of the communal mess. And that was what enfranchised you to be a peer, that that position you just described. Well, and, and that, that wealth inequality caused that body of peers to diminish to the point where they're having to equip and arm their slaves at risk of revolt so they could right. put enough fighters in the field. That was, so, that,
3: that was a really interesting aspect, like reading about that, about how the, the system that they set up inherently caused wealth to be concentrated over generations into a smaller and smaller select few, which... Uh, prevented more of the, you know, the the young men from entering the uh, the what, what's it called going through the you know the gauntlet the of. The so, right, right. Yeah. So,
2: so yeah, so they call it uh, a gay is the word that most people know, but that's okay. actually a later Latin word. Xenophon calls it the pedia, which means the education. That's the, the better education. word.
3: Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> so, like, going through that process and becoming a peer, uh, like, less and less people basically could afford to do this and to, yep. to pay their dues, uh, which included uh, uh, barley, which included crops, it included coins, it included wine, you know, whatever, yep. like olive oil, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, like... It, it kind of, uh, along with the the mythology of Sparta, what I what I loved about this book is is uh, there are things that the modern right wing absolutely would idealize if they knew about it, right? <laughs> so like the concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer individuals to create power and this luxury <laughs> class is yep. like this this like right wing dream right that's that's yep. like a i think but they don't know what the truth is to even know to idealize that
2: <laughs> some of some of them do but yes so, well, people, that's true that's true the, the most extreme ones who are who are, are perpetuating the myth but here i'll do you one better will one of the reasons that 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 wealth continued to perpetuate was that spartans treated women better than most ancient greeks Mm. so it's funny you have this incredibly unequal society look greece made saudi arabia look like a picnic in terms Mm. of how women are treated like women were it's you would be way better off a woman living almost anywhere else in ancient greece in the ancient world but sparta allowed women to inherit and that was groundbreaking and in fact aristotle just goes nuts like at how awful he thinks this is yeah i didn't
3: realize he was so misogynistic oh he was
2: terrible i read that he he called the spartan (laughs) women he called the spartan women thigh flashers because they would exercise in the nude uh, alongside their male counterparts and i'm not even talking anything sexy like throwing the discus and wrestling yeah you know that it was just too much for that poor
3: guy
1: (laughs) aristotle world's first incel yeah Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Listen, we got to get back to 300. Sorry. I'm going to keep bringing this back to 300. (laughs) Sorry. Um, What in, uh, what about the popular depiction of that battle, the battle of thermophily? What about that seems accurate? What isn't Um, the number itself, the 300 that we keep hearing about, what of it was, was accurate? None of it.
2: Zero. Take the whole thing and throw it in the trash. It's, it's, you know, the, the the only, the words might be accurate, that it's called Thermopylae. And in fact, here, the bronze lie, so I, I do a, the, the Thermopylae is one of the focus battles that I dive deep on in the bronze lie. And I am about 80 to 90% happy with that depiction, but I do revise it in The Killing Ground, this new book with Michael Livingston that will be coming out um, in February, and, and I'll send both of you copies. But we spent a really long time on the ground. I've been to the battlefield now four times just combing over and taking drone shots. I'm really, really digging into how it was fought. And we think we now have the most comprehensive narrative of exactly what happened there. And I am not exaggerating when I say there is almost nothing in that film that is accurate to it. It was not 300 Spartans. Uh, It was it was. The battle did not go down the way it did. It wasn't even fought in the in the same configuration and in the same location uh, that it's depicted in the battle in the uh, in the film. Like each, every story tick uh, that that film goes through. and every visual reference, and it just makes me so angry too, because the actual visuals, and I tweeted this too, again, back when I used Twitter, I showed one of those crappy gray helmets that they're wearing. And then I showed um, a a reproduction of an actual Spartan king's helmet, what Leonidas's helmet might have actually looked like. And it's like holding up a da Vinci next to some kid scratching on the back of some lined paper. And so they literally neutered the the real uh, badassery and visual uh, Mm -hmm. impressiveness of the actual fighting.
1: So yeah, you you won the, the So again, for our listeners who, who don't know, and God bless you if this is all new to you, and this is you know if if you haven't heard any of this, that's fantastic, I guess. But it is a real thing. It's a phenomenon that's been around for a long time. The basic premise is there's this huge Persian army, and this group of white men stands against it. This Westerners stand against it to fight this small group, and they 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 lose. A very se- a,
3: a, to be very a very sexy. Very, sexy. Army. very like, sexy, very sexy, yes. Very, yeah. like, yeah. I, I watched 300 and I was like, Man, I would, I would, <laughs> I would turn, <laughs> I, mean, I would be a traitor in a heartbeat. Like, mean, that we agree, awesome. the, the Persians that, are that looks sexy, so rad, that, yeah, that, exactly.
2: Everybody, it's, it's
3: a battle <laughs> of good looking people, yes,
2: yeah, it's,
1: exactly. It's, it's true, um, but there's this huge. Uh, a huge aspect of it is that the plan was to basically slow them down, create a chokehold in a small area that the Persian army would have to get through where their ma- their vast numbers would be neutralized basically. So, so co-
2: comment, comment, that, that is the, that idea of slowing and starving the Persian army is the yeah. idea I posit in the bronze line. That is not the idea mm. put forward in the film. The idea put forward in the film is that the Oracle at Delphi says that if a Spartan king doesn't die, then all of Greece will fall. And so Leonidas is sent as a suicidal sacrifice. And that is hot buttered bullshit. That is not what happened (laughs) at all. Like there is just, it's just not true. Now I I can say that Frank Miller and Zack Snyder can be forgiven in that they're cleaving to Herodotus in this because Herodotus does say this in his narrative, but it doesn't take a lot of work. It doesn't take a lot of cross-referencing other sources to be like, oh, uh, no, that's not what happened.
3: Yeah, this wasn't a suicide mission, like is so romantically, uh, no. you know, uh, uh, portrayed so often.
2: No, it, it was. It was two very skilled generals. With very good plans, and the Persians outgeneraled the Greeks. They, yeah. <laughs> they were a little bit smarter. And, and no one wants to admit that because it's not as dramatic as a faded last end.
1: Oh man. Okay, there's so much to I want to address there. One, first of all, let me real quick get back to something you said that I really appreciate, which as a doctor, I really appreciate this, where you're like, well, there's, when there's things that are not clear. Historians want to say they know, but sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you have to admit that there's some uncertainty and the same thing exists in medicine. Like when a new thing comes on that we don't know a lot about, say for example, COVID, if someone comes out and tells you they know exactly what you should be doing or not doing, that's something to take with a little grain of salt because it's just so hard to know in those Mm -hmm. situations. You know, that's something I really like about the, the, the the outlook you have in this book and you make very clear that you're doing the best with what you can. And some of these historical sources like Herodotus and Plutarch and these other historians, they would say other weird outlandish shit that we all know is not true. Like for example, and and I know that Xerxes actually used this point that the Persians actually came the legend of Perseus from his grand his son Perseus. And the story is that the the legend Perseus, the guy with the clash of the Titans and the Medusa's head, like his son formed the Persians. That's the Greek version of where the Persians come from. All right. Which is like ridiculous, obviously. <laughs> which is not how it works, which is like, which is kind of fun for me to think about because Perseus was kind of a fun character to read about, but it's not true. Xerxes actually I heard knew that and he used that as a selling point when he went to like Greece and he was like, come on, we're all like one family here or something. Yeah, well, just think, think about how brilliant
2: that is. And yeah. and also and also, prior to that, we have Persian generals sacrificing at the Temple of Apollo. Um, and, and look, these are all examples. One of the things that pisses me off so much about 300 is that the Persians are depicted as total morons, just throwing frontal assaults at this impregnable position and being cut to pieces. Like, they're just total idiots. Yeah. And there's and these examples you just gave, the, the, the skillful marshalling of Greek mythology, of, of Xerxes and Darius before him, looking at the Greeks and going, hmm, these are really, really religious and spiritual people. They have a custom of xenia, of guest friendship. Um, if we can show that we have real ties to them, cultural and spiritual ties to them, that's going to make the countryside a lot less hostile Let's get this message moving. That is brilliant, dude. Yeah. That is absolutely brilliant, yeah. and speaks and speaks
1: volumes about what a, what a great general Xerxes was. What What you're doing, I appreciate, and we did in this book. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've learned a lot more and more about Persians and our contribution to the world. Like, you know. Everything from like neurosurgery to pajamas to high heels to this podcast. To this podcast. <laughs> right. Pretty sure I invented podcasting. I'm not gonna, not sure if that's been you know, widely dispersed, but I'm the first podcaster. Um, but but you're the first historian I've seen that posits this very basic concept, which is, you know, what if this giant empire that was able to somehow conquer and rule huge swaths of the world. Weren't complete fucking idiots. What if? What if? <laughs> <laughs> what if? What if they were like? I'm not. Maybe not fucking brilliant, but like not shitheads. Like, like you know, the first time I've seen that, which is like really fucked up and kind of sad when I think about it now, and I say it out loud. But really, the first time I've seen it, where it's posited, like, well, let's assume that the Persians had an idea of what they were doing.
3: Well, that's that's Mike's law of incompetence, right? Yeah. Uh, law of, it, yeah. law of competence. Yeah. Law of competence. Yeah. Uh, as I incompetently recite uh, what you wrote, um, the law of competence, which says that like, don't ascribe stupidity to these generals that were very successful back in their day, just because the narrative, uh, you know, says that oh they tripped and fell and you know uh, it fell on a rake and it hit him in the head or some shit. No, it's like like there's it. I appreciated that part of what you're talking about, Mike. Like explain the law of competence basically. It's just, uh, yeah idea
2: that it's just the idea that if you are in a position of command you know so you remember you don't get to be the king of kings and stay on the throne the moment you ascend to the throne and indeed xerxes dealt with a major revolt as soon as he ascended everyone in the world is gunning for you right so like if you're able to remain in that position you're doing it by large because you're good not because you're bad now if you are, there certainly are incompetent generals and idiot kings, and, and, and we certainly see that throughout history, but you're going to know when, when those people are in those positions. And of course, competent people make mistakes. But by and large, you're way better off assuming that people are making decisions out of, out of good reason and not out of stupidity, lacking additional data. And that position has has, has served me pretty well. And let me give you an example, Kaveh, from 300 is this idea that there's a secret goat track, right? And Ephialtes has to expose it. Is a I was just
3: looking up, I'm on IMDB trying to remember that character's name because I was going to bring up this example, so I'm glad. So so
2: Ephialtes, uh, in in modern Greek, the word means nightmare. That's how his name endured uh, oh, through, through, through history. But so the idea that he had to show the Persians the secret goat track around the Spartan rear, never mind the fact that there was not one trail that flanked the position. There was like eight of them. But look, you're going to tell me that the biggest empire in the known world with the most sophisticated intelligence network that has done all of this battle prep before even getting here, laying in stores, digging a canal. They're not going to do scouting. Yeah. They're not <laughs> going to hire local people yeah, and be like, read- what are the paths around here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just going to not know, right? That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
3: it relies on the idea that that they have just through dumb luck. Just through the through the the uh the it, ableism it's... uh <laughs> present in the in the uh, Spartan society it becomes like the the <laughs> You know, the, like their their fortune is is, is that, that's what favors bad
1: luck. That's the only reason yeah. the Spartans if
3: the Spartans it, were just nicer <laughs> to disabled people, this was Exactly. Never yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's what it that's essentially what it posits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, uh speaking of competency, uh if you don't uh, stay tuned and listen to all these commercials, then I will question yours. We'll be right back. Okay. We're back. Um, you know, there's a lot more about this, uh, this, this movie. I I remember when it came out 300, I remember having pretty intense disagreements online with, with friends on Facebook. Uh, one particular friend who, you know, I love the guy from high school. I've known him for a long time. And and I remember being like this, this movie is, this is not a, a good movie to have right now. I think it's an unhealthy thing to expose. our our nation to in a time where there's already this weird uh, sort of hostility against the Middle East. And it's not historically accurate. And I remember getting to the big argument and the person was like, no, listen, it's just an allegory. It's just like any other movie. You know, it's like, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings was an allegory of World War II. And I'm like, well, I mean, that might be true, but there's a difference between calling them orcs and calling them Persians because the Persians were real. And I, I remember like, being pretty upset about it, but being really in a very small minority of people. Now, Will, you were a young lad at the time. Um, <laughs> Mike, you too. Uh, be honest with me. Don't, don't, don't lie to me, guys. Don't lie, don't, don't put on any bullshit right now. I want to know when you watch the movie as young men, able-bodied, hot-blooded American males, <laughs> you watch that movie and come out being like, Fuck yeah, gonna fucking fuck up some. Middle Easterners like tell me what were your thoughts
3: Uh Mike I'll, I'll go first uh, I thought I enjoyed it Just on the most surface level way Possible Honestly, I wasn't that familiar with the story. Um, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd vaguely, you know, I I knew the word Spartan. I knew of Sparta, but I did not know much of anything. And I remember watching it. You know, my dad worked in the film business uh, growing up. Like, I'm, I'm not under any preconceived notion that this is, like, historical accuracy. But at the same time, I thought maybe there were more, like... I didn't know. Did the, did the, the Persians have like some kind of explosives that, that, you know, in the movie they're mm-hmm. hurling like gunpowder, like, you know, like. It's bombs NASA. It's and NASA.
2: Shit. Yeah. It's naphtha And they, and they, and there is
3: some evidence that they had it, but it
2: wouldn't have looked or worked like what it looked like. In
3: right. The so like, so I, I thought maybe like, maybe, you know, obviously this is the most Hollywooded roided up movie. Imagine version of this, but hannibal had his elephants did were there rhinoceros uh you know like <laughs> no, was marching no. with rhinos like what the fuck <laughs> no. man like i was like i was like i was enthralled by it and obviously like it was the beginning of frank snyder's like like zach snyder or Zack snyder yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, zach snyder's like like uh, style. And mm. it was so unlike anything else that had been put out that I was, I was enthralled with it on that level for the most part. Um, no, I did not want to go fuck up some middle Easterners personally. That was not my bag. Never was really my bag. Uh, I born and raised in the South. I kind of like, you know, the harder everybody around me pushed in one direction. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's where I was coming from.
1: Mike, Mike well, would, what, you, you did a lot of military service. I mean, was this, I feel like probably military service like used this in some way, whether they purposely did or not, like it probably increased like some military service. How did it affect you? Yeah,
2: like all people who didn't know anything about Islam, I viewed um, Islam post as a as an existential threat to all democracy and to all of Western civilization. Um, and, I, and I went to Iraq and I fought. Um, and, in the, and, and I was lucky, I guess, to be an intelligence officer. And, in, in, and because I was doing intel work, I had to learn Islam, and I had to read the Hadith and Sunnah, and I had to understand the Quran and I had to really, really, you know, in fact, one of the big things I worked was, um, I, I, one of the things I'm most proud of was um, predicting bombings on um, Shia pilgrimage routes that um, al-Qaeda in Iraq were doing. Um, but when you really come to understand Islam, you fall in love with it. Um, and you understand that um that that the the gulf between the public impression of what Islam is, certainly they're Islamic extremists. Certainly their jihad is 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 a horrible thing. Certainly, I'm not discounting any of that. We have a problem, right? Yeah. And we're seeing it right now. yeah, but but the idea that that is Islam writ large is just, you can't come to that conclusion unless you don't you know nothing about it. And I wish one of the great regrets in my life is that I had to participate in that fucking war in order to learn that. Um and I'm, you know, I do what I can now to uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, you can't make up for participating in a war. You just have to live with it. Um but yeah, man, that movie, I loved it. I thought yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't even I didn't it wasn't until 2017 that I taught myself Latin and Greek and really Got myself into uh, um, ancient warfare and really became a serious scholar of it, um, and that was when uh, I really was able to to gain access to the story and just see what a travesty it was.
1: You know, I, there's a lot to be said there. One one thing I, I have to say, I really appreciate it. I also really appreciate the fact that you know, you know, uh, I, I exist in a very leftist sort of world. I mean, where I live and the people I interact with. And I think there is a a real misconception uh, amongst, uh, and I hope it's changing, maybe it is, amongst these the people I exist upon of of military personnel. And assuming all military personnel are one sort of uh, like monolithic type of dude, um, and that's just, A, it's not the case, they're humans and they're people just like us and they're varying political opinions just like us and they see and they learn and do different things just like us and i think it's really important for someone to have your experience and have done that and still come out and write about it and i really appreciate that so i want to put that out there right now um yeah. and, and make sure i can give voice to that too you know Um, like I don't know how much truth there was to the whole story. You would hear stories about like people coming back from Vietnam, being spit upon for being baby killers or whatever. I don't know if that was even true, if that happened or not, but I'm sure there was some ill will towards soldiers. So many of them are people who go over, not necessarily knowing why they're there or just trying to do their best in bad situations.
3: Uh, Just to to touch on that. My dad was, uh, he was over there, uh, 68, 69. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he failed his senior year of high school on purpose, uh, because he got his draft card and he mm. wanted to avoid it as long as possible. And he, right. he grew up in a very small town in North Carolina. Uh, you know, he said, he'll tell you this, he grew up, uh, they called themselves lint heads or that's at least they, you know, uh, the, the rich kids called them lint heads because he grew up in a mill village, you know, little mm. company homes. Uh, and He, he didn't know what Vietnam was. He didn't know where that was on a map. He couldn't have told you anything about that. He got Mm -hmm. his draft card and his mom cried, was crying when he came home from school because she got it in the mail and knew what it was. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was in World War Two. Um, uh, and. Uh, there's a, a longer story where both of them didn't get their respective medals uh, till 40 years after their service, mm. but that's it's a, mm. a story for another time. But um, point being is that uh, he was terrified, had no idea what the conflict was about. You know, poor you know country dude from North Carolina, uh, just he he just didn't yeah. he was scared you know and mm-hmm. all he knew was like it was either this or go to jail and his dad was in world war Two so he thought you know he had to go too and that was that was all there was to it so mm-hmm. um you know and he he talked about when he came back over here the names he got called and stuff and and he felt horrible but as with a lot of guys of that generation you just start drinking and that's how you cope so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? like, like that's 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 the recipe
2: there was plenty of that on, on, uh, on my end too. But the, but the one thing I will say is by and large, I have not been mistreated. Um, you know, by and large um, I've been mostly honored. There's been a few situations where where people have not um, especially what's so interesting is look, I'm just honest about it. Right. Um, and, and it's funny, like you, you're honest about what you did and how you feel about it. Um, and I, I don't feel great about it. And you sort of, I think you subconsciously expect people to be like, Oh, you know, thanks for, being vulnerable and honest and everyone I've had occasions where people like, no dude, you're a fucking murderer, you know? And I've just had to be like, well, (laughs) I guess I got aware of that. But I can't, I can't compare, I can't compare my reception coming back home to what your father went through. So he absolutely has. Well, it it,
3: point like, like the, the military quite often, um, uh, you know, goes after the, Young men that know the least about what the what the conflicts are, and and it's uh you know it's I've heard it called a poverty lottery before, where you know I you need money for school, you need money for housing and stuff, and it offers that, so it's yeah. you know it's it's part of the recipe. So, I mean they're
1: smart. Uh, I mean there's a reason you got put into intelligence. Uh, I mean they knew that they were going to get the most out of you there. You know what I mean? They're smart. They know how to use people there. And and that was the right place for you, obviously. Yeah, they
3: nailed the shit out of that, yeah, uh, right.
1: by the way. Mike, they, they, they did <laughs> they, a really they, good job. <laughs> they, 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 they good job
0: with that.
1: So getting back to the Spartans, <clears throat> yep. I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan, at least of the of the public perception of them because of how it's been misused. And we're going to get more into that at the end here. I want to talk more about that. But you know who was in to the Spartans, besides Steve Bannon, who's apparently like really into the Spartans, and yep,
3: oh, is he really?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the what's the deal? It's like his
3: password. In- it was his password on his computer. Oh my god, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he that looks like raw biscuit dough. He's the last I know in like the world dude, that should this, be in these the people. What's
2: amazing is these guys. They admire the Spartans so much. I'm like, these people would have walked you like a dog. Dude. Exactly.
3: Exactly. You
2: know?
1: Well, okay, so
2: that's big, a, that would have been That guy would have been a fucking
3: footrest.
2: Yeah. Right, so,
1: <laughs> so one of one of the Spartan myths is is of this, like they only pick the finest and the best. And you you know who else was a big fan of that was uh, Hitler was a yes. big fan of the Spartans <laughs> yes. and the the oh. eugenics that was associated with them. Now, yeah. um, he touted that their their uh, eugenics sort of program that were sort of like taught to believe, like they would throw out like the babies that didn't seem like strong but is that nope. is that true okay no no it is not
2: true and so they're again,
1: normal like, humans they're not monsters yes, either. Like,
2: there's so many examples like and the thing that's so funny is the person who perpetuates that myth is plutarch plutarch is a is a roman citizen greek language writer um who and his uh his sayings of the spartans sayings of the spartan women's and his life of lycurgus are really like the main sources that we have for all of this bullshit and he himself gives anecdotes of spartan women like talking to their crippled sons or like helping their crippled sons to battle and it's like wait a minute well and and i go into the greek like if you look at the greek the dude wasn't didn't get crippled he was born crippled and you right, can tell by the right. words that we used so it's like wait a minute i thought we were supposed to throw that guy off a cliff and never mind the fact that, <laughs> that, that one of the most famous Spartan kings, who is one of their greatest generals, is noted for having a club foot.
3: Yeah. So I,
2: guess, I guess they missed the memo there. And like there's tons of stuff. And, and there's another example. So one of the other um, things that is part of the bronze lies, this idea that if a Spartan ever loses or runs from battle, he has to commit suicide or he'll be ostracized. 120 Spartan peers, right? These homoioi who are expected to be always brave and never, they all surrender at the end of the battle of Sphacteria in, uh, I believe, 425 BC. And the Spartan state goes to no end to ransom them back. They don't Mm. say, oh, these weaklings, they're no true Spartans, let them rot in Athenian prison. Nope, they get them back. And when they get them back, the king intervenes so that they won't be punished. Mm. They are normal human beings and normal human beings love their kids (laughs) seriously but it's just like no
1: that's something i really like about the book too i'm gonna keep plugging the shit out of this book one one thing is so good it's so
3: good i gotta it's you're not
1: you're not trying to make them seem like shitty people you're trying to make them seem like people you're trying to make them seem like like normal humans which is what it's all about like and to hold them up to a standard that is not really accurate or not it is not fair to them even. but you know there's a couple aspects of the book you, you didn't go into great detail about this and I'm because it's a different topic it's not I feel like there's multiple tomes been written about this but I don't understand this relationship of the younger the younger soldier and the older man mentoring them in a in a sort of sexual but not necessarily sexual uh, relationship can you explain that and is that real i mean that's kind of what we joke about a lot when it comes to the spartans but is, is that what what was the truth behind that? And was that unique to them amongst other Greeks? Right. So,
2: first of all, no, it was not unique to them amongst other Greeks at all. Um, second of all, I want to be clear. Again, we have to be clear. We don't know. Right. With the, you know, we are doing our best with the very limited information we have. And the third thing is I want to caveat my own lack of expertise here. Right. I'm not a social historian. I'm a military historian. So I certainly looked at this phenomenon of the Aramenos and the Erastes, which is the, the listener and the hearer, um, insofar as it pertained to military training. But whole books have been written about these relationships from a social perspective, which is really where it comes to. And near as I can tell, the sexual component was part of it, but it was a lesser part of it. It was more of a social enfranchisement, mentorship uh, deal where you, you know, you're a promising young man and someone sponsors you and they bring you up and they teach you to fight and they give you things and they, but most importantly is they make introductions. Like if you think about debutante balls, um, in the South, which still go on to this day. You know, there's a lot, a lot that goes into them, but one of the important things is when you're coming out in those balls and when you're a friend or a relative or whatnot, the big, you know, business magnates of that town, the people are going to employ you and do favors for you, they're seeing you, they're meeting you, they're being impressed by you. And it seems it's like... Rotary it's Rotary Club,
3: some... it's Kiwanis. Yes, it's, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's
2: Exactly. But now, but the sexual thing is what we all get hung up on. And look, I'm sorry, uh, homosexuality, uh, it certainly... Uh, It's certainly come in for, in medieval Europe, come in for a heck of a bashing, Um, but it was a lot more casual and a lot more accepted in earlier societies and Mediterranean societies and is still to this day in different places. And it seems like there was more, certainly not total, like this idea that everyone is sleeping with boys. You know, Xenophon himself calls it an abomination and says that people don't do it. So clearly there are some sectors of society, even in ancient Greece, that frowned upon it. Um, So they just had a, a different attitude about that than we do mm-hmm. to this day. But the important thing when we look at that relationship is, while sex certainly was involved and romance certainly was involved. That wasn't the core of it. The core of it seems to have been I as an older person, am going to help this young aristocrat get his start
1: in society. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's a very interesting sort of like dynamic there. I, I don't know I, about I, like often, the Southern balls, know. but I'm curious <laughs> to know, Will, did you experience this?
3: Um, no, I was, I was never a debutante. Thank God. Um, but, uh, but, but I mean, uh, I I would argue that that type of dynamic is very much well and alive in Hollywood in uh, the mm-hmm. entertainment industry in uh, in in that that type yeah. of thing. Um, I had a uh, Kaveh, if you if you don't mind, I had kind of a, a yeah. couple quick questions. Um, so I had the thought I was talking with my my coworker who I'm gonna uh, lend this book to next to to read. He's he's super excited about it. Um, he's- I wanted to know, you know, similar to like American history, we learn the names of the wars that America was involved with. And then you find out that in countries over in Europe and stuff, they call it something completely different. And obviously their narrative about things is going to be uh, from a from their perspective, just like ours is from our perspective. And then I was curious if like if. Persian history had their account of events of the battle of at Thermopylae and like what that
2: sounded like.
1: Great question. Great question. I had the same question. Yeah.
2: So this is this is something that we talked about before we started recording, Will. Um, And the the, first of all, there are better historians to answer this question. Tom Hyland and his Persian Interventions is probably the best person to speak to it. Um, the, the real answer for me is I don't know. And one of the disadvantages I'm at, and I talked to Kaba about this, is that the the lack of relations between the United States and Iran means that it's almost impossible for me to get access to modern Persian scholars who are surely working on this thing. Um, so, so I really don't want to answer that question and give you a gotcha. bullshit um, answer. But one of the great crimes is, Look, one of my dreams is to be able to safely go to Persepolis and Susa and read the inscriptions and meet with Persian scholars, with translators, so I could try to get answers to these. But there are English language scholars working um, in this field, and the best one I can think off the top of my head is Tom Highland H-Y-L-A-N-D, and his book, Persian Interventions, I think is probably the best Um, a best, uh, read on this. So, but I don't want to give you a bullshit answer.
3: No, no worries. No worries. Well, uh, so, so my, my coworker, Aaron, he, he said that he has, has read and heard before that one of the reasons why we remain so enthralled with, uh, Greek and Roman, uh, uh, Military history is because when the historians were writing accounts of it, they wrapped it in a compelling narrative. You know, they 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 kind of gave it a treatment, you know, almost like a script treatment uh, before putting it down in history and. It kind of made me, I I don't know if that's 100% accurate or if it like made it, you know, uh, the way like oral tradition, uh, you know, you tell stories, you you hit the beats, you kind of have like narrative arcs and stuff. Um, It made me think about the fact that we are living with this version of the Spartans that has been done. By Hollywood through this narrative, this hyper narrative. It's like it's like we we made a modern version with uh, Frank Miller's 300 and Zack Snyder's 300 uh, and the culture and pop culture around it that the Greeks and the Romans were doing way back when we just did a modern modern Hollywood treatment of it.
2: Yeah, that is exactly right, and I love it. What a great way to put it. Um, and uh, I can give you a couple of examples here. But the first thing I want to say is that we, as modern people, when we consider history, we are used to this idea of, of of objectivity. This idea that historians are investigators. That we we vet sources. We consider evidence. We compare accounts to each other. You know, we we um we carbon date things. We we is this eyewitness uh reliable is that eyewitness reliable you're a, it's
3: detective. You're a detective Yeah I've yeah. been
2: well I, and I've been both a police investigator and an intelligence officer and what I always tell people is that police investigator, intelligence officer and historian are almost the same thing. Um in, in that they're really trying to get at the truth through considering evidence. But that idea of objectivity and in investigation is modern. It's not ancient, right, and in right. fact, Herodotus is famous for being one of the first people to say, I'm just gonna try to figure out the truth here instead of trying to tell a story. Hmm. And the best example for your, for what you're talking about is that Plutarch, and again, Plutarch, this writer who's 500 years after the fact, a Greek-speaking Roman um, is, he is our main source for most of this bullshit about Sparta, and he is not writing a history. He is writing a, a morality book. It's, right. it's comparing famous Greeks and famous Romans' lives with the goal, A, obviously, of showing how great Romans are, because that's where he lives, sure. right? Sure. Um, and B, improving the reader's moral character. He's right. not trying to tell you the truth. And he's, and, and he's not even making that claim. And that is the basis by which we know Sparta, all the way through till today. So you are exactly right in your interpretation of that.
1: You know, it's it's such a interesting topic that you cover, and you know, I'm not even a guy who's into military stuff or military history. Um, I am as pacifist as they come. And- Me either, by the way. Like,
3: this is this is the first book I've ever read on this, this topic, and I'm fascinated yeah. by it. It, it, right. it is
1: you, re- you review like 126 different military entanglements or battles or incursions, whatever the word is. Of these, only 50 seem to have been won by the Spartans. Right. And it's really fascinating that they were able to build this Spartan mirage from that. And it's almost like a testament to the branding that they were able to do at the time. Because as we've discussed, I mean, like we we took it to the next level with like these movies, 300 and the comic, etc. But even before then, it was there enough to inspire Frank Miller and the, the guy who made the movie that inspired Frank Miller. So like, how did they have like a machine in order to do that? Like, were they the first masters of PR? Right.
2: So, so the again, the answer is I don't know, but I think they didn't. I don't think they did it. I think other people did it for them. Right. I think the Athenians did it mostly. The um, but the there's a great uh, example, and I I don't know if I use it in the book. I think I. Do if not i certainly use it in my article in the new republic so tom holland who is one of my favorite story actor
1: one of the second best no no <laughs> the second best part
2: everybody says this they go so tom holland gave us a, a cover quote for the killing grounder book coming out in february everyone's like oh spider-man loves your book and i'm like it's not that <laughs> just right, you know what um, like okay just similar just to, like, cool taylor, it,
3: similar to the nfl and taylor swift just like just like <laughs> use that use just it. roll <laughs> Let yeah. It, go. Use it yeah yeah, yeah.
2: All right, so Spider-Man, uh, he's one of the best historians out there, and I really, really love his work. He yeah. wrote an article, oh, yeah. um, I can't remember when he wrote it, but it's a review of the film 300. And one of the things he talks about is that the Battle of Thermopylae, which is portrayed in the film 300 as this glorious defeat, I guess. It was such a futile fart and high wind. Like, it was such <laughs> that the Greeks got steamrolled. They just got their asses handed to them. And uh, Themistocles, who's sort of the head of the Greek coalition, is like, holy shit we just got beat so bad that all of greece is going to surrender if i'm going to have any hope of of holding this coalition together we need a propaganda victory right now Hell and man. he spins this bullshit story about a fated suicide mission that and it gets legs man like it takes off and tom holland posits this in his review of the film 300 um, a, a few years ago, and I think he's really on to something there because Themistocles was absolutely a master spin doctor the Greeks just got steamrolled. And that is it was the only way they could have could have saved the day. And in fact, it
3: did. You that's think it. I look bad, you should see the other guy. Like that's yeah. that's he was like the originator of that shit, you know? Like Yeah, I know I look like I got my ass kicked, but I'll put that dude in the hospital. Well you know? so like, we say we say we say in the killing ground, uh, when when when
2: Leonidas executes his brilliant plan at Thermopylae just gets fucking killed. We go. He meant to do that. That's the yeah, yeah. story. That's the or- oh, he was masterful suicide. play. He meant to do that.
1: Masterful yeah. play. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well played. Yeah. Excellent gambit, sir. So okay, this is I guess should be our last topic here. Although I could talk to you for hours, man. But you in your book, you cover so many different aspects of the Spartan Mirage. You, you know the 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 cult of personality, the discipline, the strength, the Spartan quote unquote ethic. The shunning of riches, the their piousness, whether or not that was true or not. the Of all these things that you cover, and, and you sort of break down very like tactfully during the process of this book, let me ask you, what's the danger with a little hero worship? What's the problem with the Spartan fad exercises that, that popped up after that movie? Sure. Like, uh, what's the problem with these people trying to make a little money off of the spartan mythology mythos tell me what 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 what's the issue here so there's three issues um and uh i did an
2: article on this for smithsonian magazine in, in the end of it i really lay it out um the first issue is that the moat look i'm actually horrified by political extremism on both the right and the left though i consider myself a leftist um and, but I am not talking about regular conservative people with whom we can disagree reasonably. I am talking about the most extreme, you know, elements on the right uniformly use the Spartans as icons. And that is not cool and not okay. And, um, you know, so, for example, I'm a Buddhist. Uh, The swastika is a is a is a core image among Buddhists. We can't use it. It's it's destroyed um, by the Nazis. So it's the same thing here is that is that no you don't get to own history. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and, and, and if, and if just by telling the truth, I can put a pin in that balloon, I'm happy to do that. Um, the second thing too, is that the truth matters. The truth matters right or wrong, you know, good or bad. We we like it. We don't like it. The truth matters. Um, and we are either people like I'm not an alternative facts person, right? Like I want to know, uh, you know, look, obviously there's nuance and people can disagree about things, but when it comes down to to facts, they matter. And and that record I want set straight um, for all the ripples it sends out into the universe. But the third thing, and this is the thing that really, really upsets me, is that the Spartans were truly extraordinary people. And our ability to connect to and be inspired by and learn from other people really depends on our ability to see ourselves reflected in them and, and to sort of think, wow, you know, if, if if they could do that, maybe I could too. Um, and when you replace human beings with bronze statues, you know, it's funny, that's why I hate Frodo Baggins, right? When people talk about, this is from the Lord of the Rings, people talk about Frodo Baggins, like, I hate him. You know, I've what heard is of that. This-
3: I've studied that battle before. That, that
2: <laughs> was horrible. Uh, in- what? what what is Frodo Baggins' worst character flaw? He's excessively earnest. Like, I, I don't think that guy's ever taken a shit in his life. Like he's he's just like there's nothing wrong with him. Like he 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 smiled too sheepishly. Like, yeah, no, dude, flaws. I can't
3: yeah, he's I not can't great.
2: identify I can't identify with a character like that, right. you know. And and we rob people of our ability to truly connect with who the Spartans were when we talk shit about them and 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 weave these bullshit stories and we do it. You know, based on our own insecurities, we feel inadequate and we want an example to live up to. You know, well, we're going to be as tough as the Spartans, but you're not. You're going to be as tough as a lie that you made up because the actual Spartans were humans like you. And coming to grips with your own humanity is the way, not holding yourself up to some impossible standard. That's what bothers me about it.
3: Yeah. To touch on your first point about uh, like taking symbols and and imagery and kind of ruining it, um, as a fat guy with a lot of Hawaiian shirts uh, in the closet, that (laughs) he's holding
1: up one now. I refuse to let the
3: Boogaloo Boys uh, like take this from me. Like I know that I'm bald. I know I have a big beard. I know I have tattoos. I know I'm fat. I know I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt, but God damn it, I'm not an accelerationist, and I don't want to murder you uh, with a, uh, you know, wearing a, a goddamn ceramic plate on my chest. So, well, well uh, I,
2: I, have a que- I have a question.
3: Yeah. As somebody who was
2: fought in Iraq. Yeah. Do you think it's a good idea if your goal is armed conflict to wear a hot pink or or neon orange shirt? That make a 200-yard shot.
3: Uh, it depends on if, if, you're, if your battleground is a mall from the 80s, then yes. Outside okay. of that, then no. Absolutely okay. fucking not. <laughs> Clearly, I don't understand the boogaloo app. Yeah, um, me either.
2: But I'm, I'm glad you are reappropriating Hawaiian shirts. Yes. Yeah, I'm man.
1: With- you take it. That's yours. Don't give that up. That, <laughs> yeah. You cling to that one. I'll fight for your right to wear that shirt. You so too. Thank you. Um, and you're husky, by the way. I wouldn't say fat. But... <laughs> It, no, it's it's amazing. It's a really interesting thing how the symbol it's become a symbol for these far right groups like the Golden Dawn in Greece is neo-Nazi or fascist, uh, the There's NRA, etc. White supremacists they use it. You know they use like the Spartan insignia in this way. It's, it mm-hmm. is it is an unfortunate thing that happens. And, it, and yeah, they take this. They take good stuff, man, yeah. and they ruin it for us and they ruin it for everyone. And then we have to just give it up. That's just how it is. Sometimes it's how it is. Good thing is there's a constant influx of new symbols that we can then take <laughs> fun with. So that's the beauty of symbols, people. We can make them up as we go we've along. Just,
2: we, yeah, we've just reappropriated the Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Hell for yeah.
1: example, Hawaiian shirts. We 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 strongly stand by the Hawaiian shirt yes, here at sure. the Hustle yeah, Pod. Sure. Well, listen, guys, this was such a blast. I mean, Mike, one day, inshallah, boy, that's going to get me on a list somewhere. Um, We'll both go to Iran and we'll travel to Persepolis and we'll get some dope food and uh, get some history there. Um, Mike, let, tell people where they can get this book that we really, uh, again, I, we really did enjoy. You can tell we enjoyed it because it is not a, a thin book. It is, I'm even pulling it right now, Mm-mm. about 60 something <laughs> pages. It, it, it is a big book. I, and I can... promise you
2: I'm not compensating for anything. Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. so so the, the best way to the best way to find me is just come to my website, M Y K E, uh, I spell it with a Y M Y K-E-C-O-L-E dot I'm on social media, but I really try not to use it because social media is poison. My email address is on that website. You can find all my writing. All of my, my books are there. You can grab the the titles and, and pull them on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And all of my um, online writing that's freely available, you can click a link and read any of it, it includes a lot of articles. Um, about the Spartan uh about the bronze lie, including the ones I've done for the New Republican and Smithsonian magazine. And if you wanna tell me that I suck, uh my email's right there. You can you can shoot me an email. <laughs> Man, I,
1: I can't I mean, I hope nobody does that. I'm sure somebody will. I mean, Every I'm so damn nice day, day dude. I've got deck <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. It's a great I can't wait to read the next one. The killing field, you said the killing ground. Yeah. And, and again, both of
2: you, please do not buy it. I will make sure that uh, copies get sent to you. Oh, oh man. Yeah, well, well, so I guess much. you're
1: gonna have to come back for that one then. Because we um, we're gonna have to talk about that some more. Uh, will, uh, wh- where can people find you? I you, you will
3: me 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 uh you can find me on twitter at the wapple house w-a-p-p-l-e-h-o-u-s-e um you could listen to us on george center pod uh george center is the podcast i do with some buddies of mine we actually did a 300 episode um because i re it with my son uh about a year and a half ago uh he had never seen it before and as i'm watching it i'm going Wait a second. This is the root of all of the alpha male bullshit that I see on Instagram every single day and all of the TikToks and all of this. Like it just like it all clicked for me. And I was like, all the dudes running for office right now that are like my age were the prime age to absorb this and not (laughs) like think critically about it ever again. Just model their entire existence after it. So uh, you can find that episode uh, on George Center and uh, come follow me and listen to me there
1: great show and also uh, Will or Christy Yamaguchi Maine is like one of the few reasons I actually am still involved online. It's so. just really fun to follow you there. Man what a, what a blast this was. What a great book. I can't wait to hang out with both you guys again sometime in the near future. Thank you both so much. Everyone if you haven't already rate and review us. I get a real real kick out of reading those reviews when you leave them for me on iTunes. Really appreciate it. Bye. Mwah